do invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. That would be Judges chapter 3. Judges there in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 3. We are making our way through an exposition of Judges. Um, Looking forward to getting back into it today. Uh, Just a couple of things. Uh, Be praying for our youth. Many of our teenagers are at a conference or uh, retreat this weekend. They're probably be traveling back very soon. So just pray for their safety. We anticipate their return. And then tonight, tonight at 6 p.m., right out there in the multi-purpose room, we're going to have our very first uh, prayer and praise night. Um, Very first, we've never done this before, so it would be really good if some of you would come. Yeah, so it would be great to have you here to pray with us tonight, to sing with us, uh, and uh, hopefully it would just be an enriching time in the Lord that we would just be able to come together as God's people, pray together, sing God's praises together, and just be encouraged, and ultimately be able to join together to honor the Lord. And so please, by all means, come back tonight, 6 p.m., right there in the multipurpose room. We're just gonna have a good time in the Lord tonight, and um, just come and and join with us and enjoy that time together. Uh, There is probably in soccer going on in here and so if the parking lot looks full you may have to park around uh, the other side but just know that as you come in uh, this evening six o'clock right here invite you to come back um, for that praise and prayer night judges chapter 3 we're gonna be looking at verses 7 through the end of the chapter hold on to your seats this is where it gets fun all right verse 7 of judges chapter 3 And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the hand or so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Verse twelve. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near, near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. All his attendants went out from his presence and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went into after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull out the sword from his belly and the dung came out. 
Then Ehud went out, from the, out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Let's pray. God, we turn to your word for instruction, for wisdom, for guidance, for help. And so, Lord, we come to this text today, and for many of us, maybe it's the first time hearing it, it's quite shocking the detail and the, the details of what happens. And so Lord, we would ask for your assistance now and your help as we seek to try to make sense of what you're telling us and what you're communicating through Judges chapter three. So God, would you give us insight? Would you give us wisdom and would you change us as we hear your word today? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in some ways, Judges reads like an epic miniseries. Has twists and turns and has detail that we're not quite sure what to do with. And in the end, we're disappointed because it leaves us hanging. Some of the characters that emerge are quite memorable while others are just there for a minute and easily fade away. Some of the details are simple, if not boring, and others are outright hilarious and disturbing, even graphic. If you were rating our text today, we might give it a PG-13, I don't know. But amidst all the twists and turns in Judges, there is one continued theme. There is one continued storyline. As we stated in our first several messages in this book, we, we really find the people of God in a cycle. This cycle is most visible in chapters three through 16. And as we've said before, the, the cycle can be outlined as follows. The people sin, they repent, God raises up a judge to save them, to deliver them. All is well, the judge dies, and the people go back into sin again, and the cycle continues over and over and over again. Because the people of God had failed to do as God originally commanded them, they now find themselves in this vicious cycle of sin. Again, there was a reason God commanded them to rid the land of the Canaanites. And here they find themselves, as the Bible will say many times throughout the book of Judges, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
time and time again, there is a need for deliverance in Judges. Time and time again, there is a need for a leader or some type of savior to come to their aid. Yet what you will find throughout the book of Judges is that no such leader can bring ultimate and lasting deliverance. So why would we study this shocking, graphic, and in the end, disappointing narrative of a people who lived thousands of years ago? To just watch them in this vicious cycle, to come to the end of the book of Judges, I'm giving away the ending already, where they're still there in need of help. We study this book because in the midst of the people's rebellion against God, we see a God who delights to deliver his people even when they don't deserve it. This is why we've called this series Relentless Grace. This book of Judges is ultimately a testimony to the relentless grace of God in pursuing an obstinate and difficult people. And while this book does not leave Israel with a suitable and permanent deliverance, it does point to the fact that God not only can deliver, but that one day he would ultimately deliver his people. God is faithful to deliver his people even when they continue to turn against him. And so here in chapter three, here in chapter three, this passage, the second part of chapter three, verses seven and following, we're going to look at several observations concerning both our need for deliverance and God's faithfulness to deliver. I want us to see several lessons, if you will, about God's deliverance that we need to understand. So let's walk with, let's walk with judges. Let's walk with the Lord through this chapter to understand his deliverance better. First thing that we see, the first lesson, the first observation that you need to be reminded of this morning is that there is a constant problem present in the lives of God's people. There's a constant problem. God had warned his people of the consequences that they would face having left the Canaanites in the land. And it doesn't take long to see the result, does it? There was a reason. God's judgment upon the Canaanites, but also because he knew that these Canaanites would have a negative impact upon God's people. He knew that this would happen. Verse seven, God's people are described, God's covenant people. This is God's people, God's covenant people. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So how did this happen? How did they go from being God's covenant people to full-blown rebellion, worshiping idols? Well, some might say, well, maybe they weren't just reading enough of the book of Moses. Maybe they were neglecting their quiet times, their prayer times. Maybe, maybe they weren't offering enough sacrifices. Maybe they weren't going to church enough, if you will, like they were supposed to. Well, perhaps some of these things were obvious in their lives, but really that's not getting to the heart of the issue. What we see here in this passage is that the key to their abandonment is clearly told to us in verse seven. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God. This was how they abandoned him. They forgot him. They, they, they forsook him. They, they neglected 
their faithfulness. And again, this is not, this is not saying that they had this nationwide amnesia. Well, who is the Lord? Who is God? To say that they forgot the Lord doesn't mean that they had no knowledge of God whatsoever. What that means in this context, their forgetfulness is really descriptive of their rejection of God and their rebellion against God. No longer did the things of God hold sway in their life. No, no longer did the commands of God matter to them. So instead of serving the Lord and worshiping him, they drove around in their chariots with their coexist bumper stickers, attending their progressive communities of faith, which involved all of the forms of idolatry of the day. Their approach to spirituality now enabled them to recognize and worship other gods. Friends, let me remind you, we are not talking about the Canaanites today. We are talking about the covenant people of God living in this manner, living in this way. We are talking about the very people that had been delivered from Egyptian bondage and placed in the promised land. And here we have it, they are doing evil. They were engaged in full-blown idolatry. How did this happen? They forgot the Lord, this is what the text says. I like what Tim Keller said in commenting on this passage. Pastor Tim Keller said, our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. Well, that's a great picture, especially this time of year. And this is how our hearts are, like a bucket of water on a cold day that unless we constantly smash the ice, it will freeze up. It's a great picture that helps really understand what's going on in the heart of God's people. Because of our sinful natures, because of our proneness to wonder, as the hymn writer says, because of our tendencies, we are in continual need to remember all that God is and all that God has done. The New Testament picks up on this as well. In fact, if you were to turn to 2 Peter chapter one, you can turn to 2 Peter very quickly. In 2 Peter chapter one, Peter urges the believers in this text to grow, certain, to grow in certain Christ-like qualities. And so he says, he talks about the power of God and the salvation that we have, and he says in verse five, for this reason make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is that you need to be sure, you need to be examining your life that you are growing in Christ-likeness in these ways. Because as you do, as these are increasing, you will no longer be ineffective or unfruitful, but rather the opposite. You will be effective and fruitful for God's glory and his kingdom. Well, how do we do that? Verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The key to Peter, 
here. The key to Peter's instruction to the people of God for them to increase in their growth as believers is to remember. And if they aren't increasing in these Christ-like qualities, it means that they have forgotten that they were cleansed. So one of the disciplines of the Christian life by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, is that we need to constantly remember the work that has been done on our behalf. We need to be regularly reminded of truth. We need to be regularly reminded of our deliverance so that we do not grow unfruitful or ineffective or worse. That we would turn against God completely. Judges is a dangerous book for us to read. Not simply because of its graphic nature. It's dangerous for us to read because as we read it, we might, be, we might become used to it. That phrase that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord is repeated so many times that we might grow comfortable with that. Oh, it's just this again, just this again. In fact, that's what uh, Pastor Kent Hughes says. He says the danger is that we will become used to it and it will cease to shock us. That's the way it was sin, isn't it? Often in our lives, we grow so used to it that it ceases to shock us. Friends, we should never grow complacent where sin lacks shock. Couple that with the negligence to remember the gospel and we too will find ourselves bowing down to the bales of our day. Sin is a terrible reality that can offer us no lasting satisfaction. Sin is a terrible reality that will offer you nothing but emptiness in the end. It can't sustain you and it can't satisfy you. It's enslaving. By God's grace, we need everything we need to be doing everything that we can by his grace in this day and this time, not just the judges, the people of God in judges day, but even in our day, so that our senses towards sin are not deadened and that we grow distracted to the point of neglecting the gospel. Friend, you don't even have to try. Just be and your senses towards sin will grow more and more deadened and your remembrance of the gospel will grow more and more weak. You don't even have to try. You don't have to try to forget. You don't have to try to, to grow more cozy with sin. It will happen. So this is the continued problem that God's people had. It's a continual problem today. We dare not sit in our righteous seats this morning and look down upon them and say, oh, how dare they? It's a continued problem, it's a continued cycle. If we're not remembering the gospel, friends, you and I too will grow complacent. But not only do we have a continued problem that's apparent here, that time and time again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. 
Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and judgment came against them and they were in bondage to whoever God rose, stood up to attack them. That's the continued problem, but we have number two. And a second point that we need to see is that we have a gracious God. We have a gracious God. God's grace is saturated throughout the book of Judges. It saturates this book in so many different ways. The story that continues to parallel the unfaithfulness of the people of God is the faithfulness of God himself. Here in the narratives, early narratives of Judges, we see God and his grace at work in many different ways. Let's, let's consider several of those, three of those right now. Number one, God's grace is apparent through how he disciplines. God disciplines us. You know, well, how is that gracious? Well, let's look. In verse eight of chapter three, we see the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. It's a great name. Now, the reason you find that name mentioned four times in such a short amount of time is I believe that the writer here is trying to make an emphasis because if you were to translate his name into sort of a meaning that we would understand today, it means king double evil. Sounds like something you'd see in X-Men or something, right? King double evil or king doubly wicked. It's an emphasis that the writer is making here. King doubly wicked. God's people were in rebellion. God raises up king double, double evil to come and handle them. This is what happens here in Judges chapter three. He was a ruthless king that was now God's instrument to bring judgment against his own people. And they'd lived under his rule for eight long years. It's like two terms of a president. Don't try to make any connotations, all right? So eight years, King Double Evil is reigning over God's people as a result of their sin. We say, how is that gracious? Well, we will see. Because even in raising up this doubly wicked king, God is extending grace to his people. Why, how? Well, had God not acted in this way, his people would have continued in their complacency and in their sin and in their idolatry and over time would have completely assimilated into the Canaanite culture. Had God not acted in such a harsh, if you will, or difficult way, his people would not have seen their true condition and called out for his help. This is grace. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 and you can see how the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. We don't like this because discipline is hard. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And he says, if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son in whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then you continue reading. You jump there in verse 10. He says, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in what? His holiness. He disciplines for us. Uh, for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Discipline is a means of God's grace to bring about repentance and change in our lives when we are against him. It's a loving action. The most loving thing God did for his people was raise up king doubly wicked. You're like, how in the world is that going to be? Because had he not done that, they would have just continued on. And he was not going to sit back and watch his people continue in idolatry because God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his promise that he will have a people for himself. So part of the grace that we see here is the discipline that God brings. The same is true in our lives today, friends. We know that God oftentimes brings hardship and difficulty and discipline into our lives to wake us up from our true condition, from where we, need, from where we are and where we need to be. But another means of grace that we see here is the fact that God hears. At some point, eight years later, the discipline worked. Just a reminder that sometimes God's hand of discipline may have to remain for a long period of time before we wake up and see what he's doing. After eight long years, the people finally cry out to the Lord and he hears their cry. God's amazing patience on display here. Through these eight long years, he is so patient. Friend, you might be here today thinking that you've been so far removed from God that there's no chance he will hear your cry even now. Let me just tell you, God's patience is more than you and I will ever understand. You are never too far away to cry out to God where he would not hear you. God hears the cries of his people. God delights in hearing the cries of his people and he delights in responding to the cries of his people. So no matter how long you have been in the condition you are, no, long, no matter how long you have been in rebellion against him, if you will simply cry out to him, he does hear. He's gracious. And I say he's gracious because he did not have to hear his people. He could have judged them and been done and been just in doing so. The fact that he offers his ear to hear the cries of his people is a demonstration of his grace, his unmerited gift towards people who do not deserve it. And then number three, God delivers. This is another act of his grace, raising up these judges. Here in chapter three, we find God raising up three different judges, and man, are they different. The first section that we have is Othniel, verses seven through 11. Most people refer to Othniel as the model savior, the model judge, if you will. It's a relatively brief account and somewhat expected. If you were thinking, if, if, you were to, if God were to, to give you the, the opportunity to say, okay, what kind of judge would you raise up? It would probably be now this side of grace, this side of the cross, you would probably raise up someone like Othniel. It's a spirit-filled man in the family of Caleb, faithful. This is what we would expect. A faithful, spirit-filled person that comes in and just wreaks havoc to King Double Wicked. This is what happens. I mean, Hollywood can make this into a two and a half hour movie, but it's pretty short and simple. No, no ooey gooey details. Just a simple, spirit-filled man that the Lord raises up to deliver his people. No gut-wrenching account, no vivid details, just a simple, and his hand prevailed over king double evil. It's all we're, all we're given. I think what this reminds us of is the author here is not intent to glorify 
Othniel. As good of a man as he was, as spirit-filled of a man as he was, the point is not we need more Othniels necessarily in the church. Rather, the point is the glory goes to the one who raised up someone like Othniel. He is a model savior. We see that Lord raises up him to deliver his people, and that's exactly what he does. And the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel died. Did you like how that just is added? And then he died, verse 11. But then we have Ehud. Ehud, I would call him the unexpected savior or the unexpected deliverer. And once you get past his name, you have all kinds of, (laughs) I bet some of you never read this, you're like, this is actually in the Bible. This is actually in the Bible, I'm reading This is the Bible. Yes, it's the Bible. And and it says this. This is graphic. And friends, there's a lot we could say about this text. And and the more you dive into that, the more graphic it gets. Let me just put it that way. Where the story of Othniel lacks in detail, the story of Ehud is sure not to disappoint. After Othniel died, God's people relapse find themselves being oppressed by the fat king Eglon of Moab. This time not for eight years, but for 18 years. Now, again, we read this story and we think, I can't believe it's even in the Bible, or I knew it was here, but I usually just skip around it, not sure what to do with all the the stuff there. But it's a fascinating story. In fact, if you were an Israelite and you read this story, it was actually written with a bit of humor here. Now you may read this through your first or 21st century glasses and think, this is not funny, this is kind of gross. An Israelite would have read this and belly laughed. You think, I'm kidding. That, that, that's how they would have read this because of the way that the language is written and, they, and the way it's been described. The, 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 the funniness is not in the details, the gory details, as much as it is in the gullibility of, of Eglon, the king, that he would even allow someone to come into his chamber. He's gullible. It's a fascinating story. Here you have this king that so easily falls for Ehud's trap. He's gullible and his servants are embarrassed. The point being made here is that King Eglon is a rich, smug king that thinks he's invincible. But Ehud walks right into the cool chamber of his house and kills him. He's not so invincible after all. Let me just say this, just a little note in passing. Most likely, Eglon was in the restroom of his cool chamber when this happened. Ehud is not the typical expected savior that we would write out. He's a left-handed man. That's not to diss all you left-handed people. It's probably due to some injury or disability that he had in his other hand, most scholars believe. So whereas Othniel was a typical strong leader type, Ehud is kind of a surprising pick. He's most likely disabled and and just not, and even as the story progresses, it, it, it just seems more and more surprising. But as that story progresses, Ehud dupes Eglon, assassinates him, escapes, and kills 10,000 able-bodied Moabites. This could be a trilogy. I mean, they could just stretch this movie out for a long time. 
Ehud, the unexpected savior, delivers Israel from the blubbery king Eglon, resulting in 80 years of peace. This is, what the, this is how you would summarize the story. Now, this story is shocking to us, but the point of it is not to get you bogged down into the gory details of the story. Rather, the point of it is to remind us that God will and God can deliver his people using unexpected leaders through unpredictable means. Nothing can stop God. Not even a fat king sitting on his throne, if you will. It also reminds us that those who think they are invincible in their own power, hence the king here, do not have absolute power. Eglon was eventually exposed for the fool that he truly was and discarded. Then we have Shamgar. Sounds like something in the Lord of the Rings. The unknown savior. One verse. Actually, you have two. In chapter five, you get another verse. Mysterious character. He swoops in into the scene in verse 31 and is gone as about as fast as he swoops in. All we know is that he took out 600 Philistines and he saves Israel. No biography, no details, no glory. I think the lesson that we see here is that while God uses the Abrahams, the Davids, the Joshuas of the world, he also uses the Shamgars of the world. Unknown, but still gets his point and his, his work accomplished. As God's act of grace is on display through all of these different saviors, lowercase s, all these different deliverers, all of these different judges, God's grace is on display because no matter who they are, known or unknown or expected or unexpected, God can use anyone at any time in any way to bring deliverance to his people. But then we have an obvious reminder. There's a lot in these stories, again, that we could look at in great detail. We don't have time in one setting. But there's a constant reality that runs through these stories and through the rest of Judges. And you'll hear me say this time and time again, but it's so true. Here's, here's the thing that you'll see. All the judges die. They're raised up. They do their job. Israel has peace, and they die. All of them. Here in our passage, Othniel is raised up, spirit-filled. He delivers, and he dies, and the people go back to sin. Ehud, the famed assassin who tricked King Eglon and killed 10,000 Moabites. And he seemed like he just came out of his shell and did all of these things. He dies. To quote one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, he said this. You could apply this to all of the judges. Ehud, sorry to say, is not a totally adequate savior. For though Yahweh brings a certain kind of salvation and help through Ehud, nothing Ehud did could change the hearts of Israel. He may have extended some beneficial influence on them while he lived, but he could not release Israel from the bondage of sin or rip idols out of their hearts. No left-handed savior spilling the guts of foreign kings can release you from that kind of bondage. And Israel's problems were much greater than political or military. They might prevail for a time, but given enough time, they would fall right back into the cycle of sin and idolatry. You might say, well, given their track record, that's not so surprising. Well, friend, what about your track record? 
What about your track record? How well do you do against sin and temptation? Our bondage does not consist of Canaanites and blubbery kings. Our bondage is not rooted in the latest struggle on Wall Street or even in the hands of Islamic terrorism. Again, to quote Davis, no left-handed savior can break us free from our tyrant, but there is one with nail-scarred hands who can. While judges might leave you entertained and shocked on occasion, the one thing that it can, cannot do is offer us a permanent solution for deliverance. That would come later. And like Othniel, the expected kind of savior, the model savior, Jesus was that, but like Ehud, he was not one people expected. Judges gives us hope because even though it's filled with inadequate saviors, we know that there would be one who would come. One who would come, a greater judge, if you will, and deliver that fatal blow to God's enemies once and for all. And this time, there would not be peace for 80 years, but for eternity. Praise God that he is faithful to deliver his people and that he has ultimately and finally done so through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose again so that you and I could be released from the bondage that we all know so well. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, you are so good you are so faithful to your word. You are so faithful to your promises, Lord. You have done so much that we, we can't even begin to thank you enough. Lord, what we're reminded time and time again in the book of Judges is this, how inadequate we are. God, how prone we are to sin and how quick we are to run to idols even when we've seen your deliverance, even when we have experienced your deliverance, Lord, we are still so weak and fragile and frail in our flesh. God, would you help this book to be a, an awakening for our hearts, a, a stirring of our souls, Lord, that we would see this as a warning and yet that we would re be reminded of your great provision. God, you know our hearts. God, you know right now as we sit here and as we reflect upon these truths, you know where we are with you. You know where we are in our fight against sin and the flesh and the devil. God, you know if we're here today and we're not, your, we're not part of your people, you know that. You know, Lord, that if we're here today and we are part of your covenant people, Lord, by faith through Christ, Lord, you even know the struggles of our hearts, the sins that so easily ensnare us. Father, my prayer today is that you would do a work of deliverance in our lives, in our hearts for your glory. 
God, that your work of deliverance would be on display at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. Lord, that your redeeming grace, your relentless grace would be on display in the lives of your people. God, you know where we are and where we need to be. Would you move in our hearts to respond appropriately to you today? And help us, Lord, to be faithful. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us. That you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.